Our gospel lesson this morning is taken from Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 9. All of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the transfiguration of our Lord. Uh, Today we read Mark's account. Would you please stand? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they, were no long, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I wonder, I wonder if you waited for this time and this place to ask the question. I mean, scripture doesn't tell us, but I wonder. I wonder if it had been weighing on his heart and he just had to ask them. I mean, he knew the answer but to hear him say it. Did he wait for this time or in this place? Or was it because of where they were, the things that they saw, the, the things that they sensed as they walked along the road that, well, he was prompted to ask them? I suppose it doesn't really matter, but it's interesting to consider. Did he, did he plan to ask it now or was it because of where they were? As I said in our introduction, we're in week two of our sermon series, God-Man, where we look at who this guy is, who's also a God. We've been looking at different episodes from Jesus' life, right? We looked at his baptism last week, and this week we're going to look at his transfiguration. And we're going to ask, what does it mean for us? Sure, the voice, the, the visitors, they meant something to those there, but what relevance does it have for us? And as we ask those questions, well, first what we're going to need to do is rewind. We're going to rewind actually about a week to ponder a more profound question that the God-man himself asked of his disciples. They were on the road on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was, well, it was a beautiful, beautiful portion of the land in Israel. It sat 1,000 feet above a fertile valley and it was a prized place for whoever has conquering Israel at the time. But in Jesus' day, this, this beautiful land was, well, it was made quite ugly by a number of different temples that adorned the valley below. Historians today have counted 14 different temples to God of, of sexuality and fertility and it came complete with, well, Temple prostitution. 
That wasn't even the main attraction in Caesarea Philippi. The main attraction happened to be the temple on the left. The temple set up to the Greek god Pan. He was, you know, that god man that was half goat, half man. Not the god man, but a god man. And rumors or legends, mythology, mythology had it that Pan was born in this cave, a cave that led to the underworld. And so when his temple was set up, it was set up with just three walls, leaving the back wall open so that people could enter into that cave and unmentionable things were done there in the name of worship. This is what Jesus and his disciples would have saw as they walked to and through Caesarea Philippi. That's not even perhaps the most impressive. As they were leaving town, they would have looked up on the hill and saw a white temple, a temple that really glimmered and glistened in the, in the Middle Eastern sun. It was a temple set up to deify a man, Caesar Augustus. And so I wonder, I wonder if Jesus waited to this time and this place to ask that question. Or Was it all the world had to offer according to religion and philosophy and Greek and Roman mythology? Was it everything that this world could offer as far as sexuality and power and prestige? Is that what made Jesus ask this question? Very simple question, actually. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and he asked, Who do people say I am? easy answer. The disciples, they jumped all over it. Well, they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. But this wasn't the most important question. How many of you have ever been set up by a question before? You know, your friend says, hey, you got anything going on on Saturday? And you say, no, not that I can think of. Great. You want to help me move? You're like, shoot, he got me. Well, that's kind of what Jesus to his disciples because the next question is much more important. Jesus asked them, he said, what about you? Who do you say I am? And I don't know if there was a pause or if the loudmouth, well, stereotypical loudmouth jumped all over it, but the 12 didn't answer. It was just one man. It was just Peter. And this is what Peter said. He said, you are the Messiah. Messiah was the Hebrew word for the New Testament word, the Greek word, Christ. And Jesus Christ, Christ was not his last name, but it was a title. It was a special title that meant something. It was the name that the prophets of old had used to to prophesy, to foretell the coming Savior. It was the name that God gave his son who had saved the world from his sins. And it was a name that meant something. To all the good little Jewish boys and girls who were waiting for a deliverer. And Peter answered it. He answered it perfectly. Well, sort of. Because Jesus was less than enthused with the answer he gave. He said this, he he warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why would Jesus, who called his disciples to be his witnesses, who who sent his disciples out, who calls all his disciples to be his ambassadors, why would he tell them, keep it quiet? Well, the answer is, one, the last chapter of the book hadn't been written. And two, the disciples and Peter, they had, well, 
They had the right title about the Messiah, but they had the wrong idea about the Messiah. They had the right title. Sure, they could label Jesus, this is who you were, this is who you are, but they had the wrong idea about what being the Messiah meant. You see, for Peter, James, and John, and the other nine apostles, the other disciples, to them, Messiah was taking on a very, well, man-given reason. It was a savior, yes, but a, a secular savior, a savior that would free them from the rule well, of Romans. For the last 1,050 years, since the time of David, Israel had been treated like a pawn back and forth between the political powers of the day, right? And so they knew what Messiah meant. They knew what Christ meant. He would be someone to deliver them. But they had in mind that Jesus was the guy, not the God. They had in mind that this was a Messiah, a Savior, well, secularly speaking, not from sin. So that's why Jesus' answer that followed immediately Peter's confession is so surprising. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days raised again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to thank and praise the Lord for revealing this to the twelve. That's not what it says, is it? No, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. He said, he said, never, Lord. And what did Jesus say? He said, get behind me, Satan. The one who actually, he just previously gave the nickname to, the rock. Now, he calls him Satan. And Peter's like, man, I didn't see that one coming. Didn't think that was my role. You know, Jesus, I'm, I'm just trying to secure for you, you know, the power, the prestige that, that comes for, for people like you, for me, we Israelites. What Israel has deserved, you're the Messiah. You can't die. Now, Peter, he had the right title, but the wrong idea about the Messiah. And I wonder, I wonder, do you too? Do we? have the wrong idea about what the Messiah means. You see, our struggle this side of heaven often tempts us, well, maybe to become disappointed with how Jesus is or perhaps is not acting in our lives. We become disillusioned to what having a Savior for me means. Why is this? Well, it's because you and I will always be more focused on this life than heaven. But because of who he is, well, there isn't just life for us, but heaven is possible. And that's why the transfiguration means something. Look and listen on with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. As I said before, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe this event, right? Matthew says his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Luke's is my favorite. He says his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And Mark, the guy who we're reading about, whose gospel we've been reading, the guy who skipped over Christmas last week, well, proves maybe he doesn't have quite the way with words Matthew and Luke do because he says this. He says his clothes became uh, really like, like clean laundry. 
like dazzling, like a really nice Tide commercial. Uh, you know, even whiter than, you know, your mom could bleach him or anyone in the world could bleach him. No, Matthew compares it to the sun, Luke to lightning, and Mark to, well, clean laundry. But I mean, can you blame him, right? Can you blame him? He's trying to describe perhaps what it is or could be the most beautiful scene this world has ever, ever seen. Jesus, God and man appearing in all his glory. And there, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Moses, who had been dead for 1,400 years. The guy who had delivered Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians, who had parted the Red Sea, who had walked down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He appeared. Elijah, who had been dead for, well, not really dead, went to heaven in a whirlwind 900 years ago, who changed a nation by pointing them back to God, who, who went up in a whirlwind of fire, stood before them. But why? Why were Moses and Elijah there? Well, consider two reasons. First, think about who they visited with. They were there with Jesus, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them tell us what Jesus was doing on the mountain. He was praying. But Luke, well, tells us what he was praying about and what they were talking about. Moses and Elijah appeared, this is from Luke, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking to fulfillment. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Remember who we're talking about. We're talking about the God-man. We're talking about true God from true God. Light from light, creator of the world, but also true man. Born of a virgin, born under law. The one who was tempted in every way, just as we were, but without sin. Can you think for a moment, Jesus, as a man, but also God, looking forward to what was going to happen in Jerusalem you ever think he was tempted to, well, maybe not feel like it that morning? As he looked and could see as a God the sins of the, of the world and know that they would be on his shoulders, do you ever think he was tempted to maybe go, I don't know if I want to hold on to all that? As he looked at the agony and the suffering that awaited him, do you think as a man he, he wanted to experience that? He prayed. He prayed, while we might be tempted in a situation like that to despair and be discouraged, he, he wasn't because he never sinned. And so he prayed. He prayed to his God and, and his God answered him and sent him Elijah and Moses, two men to encourage him and say, listen, this is the message that we have been preaching for many years. Generations have been waiting for you. This glory, this glory that is here, this is yours. This power, it is yours. You can do what you have been sent here to do. And who else was there? Peter, James, and John. Jesus went up to pray, but he didn't go up alone, right? He went there with his disciples. And in a very visible way, they were able to see what Jesus had been talking about, what they had been reading about for all their years. In one place, their hopes combined combined with what Moses had prophesied with, which what, with what Elijah and all the prophets had spoken with. And for once, they saw it. This wasn't just happening to Jesus. He was making this happen. 
This was God. This is, this is their hope fulfilled in him. It meant something. The transfiguration meant something to Jesus. It meant something to Peter, James, and John. But what relevance, what meaning does it have for you? I mean, you have the New Testament. You know how this turns out, right? Well, look and listen. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, picture it. You have Moses who stood before God in the burning bush, who stood before Pharaoh by God's command and said, be my mouthpiece. Now standing before the son of God, speaking to him. And you had the fisherman, Peter, creep in and go, hey, master, psst. I can just picture Moses getting cut off, talking to Elijah and Jesus and looking at him. Who's this? He says, master, it's really good for us to be here. How many of you have ever maybe said something you wish you hadn't? Maybe something dumb and then, well, tried to cover it up and said something even more dumb? Yeah, I think Peter might be able to relate. He says, Master, like, it's good to be here. Let's, three shelters? And it's like the Bible tries to cover up for him. He says, he didn't know what he wanted to say. He was so frightened. I can picture James and Johnson, we don't know him. I can picture Elijah and Moses being like, who, Jesus, who is this guy? Where'd you find him? Jesus going, don't worry. You know what? I, I called him the rock. He, he had to be knocked down a few pegs. I called him Satan, but he's got some learning to do. He'll get there. Listen, here's a hint. If you're ever out hiking and Jesus comes in all his glory and Moses and Elijah are standing next to him, here's a hint. Just let the adults talk. It's probably not about you. And yet Peter, what does he do? He opens his mouth. He starts talking. He says, this is good. Let's stay here. Let's stay on this mountain. I'll build tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I mean, Jesus, down on there, you're talking about persecution and pain and crosses, you and me carrying one as well. No, let's stay here. Oh, Peter was so focused on the glory on the glory here and now, that he thought it was a good idea to build tents. And Pete, don't you get it? Tents, they're temporary. And yet as I look at this impulsive man and his good intentions, oh, I see so much of myself wrapped up in that. Peter saw a little slice of heaven and he wanted to keep it. He wanted to keep it too. And the reason is that you and me Well, we were made for glory. We were made for much more than this. We were made in the image of God to be with God, to be in his presence, to be sinless. But then sin happened. And because our first parents sinned, it's not that we just have this sickness, but fundamental to our DNA, we have this thing called sin. And there is no glory. There is no heaven on earth. And yet despite that, we lived panicked. We lived like a neurotic Goldilocks, always trying to look for something, something that is just right. And as soon as we find it, we hold on to it and keep it. But then when it cools down, we go and we find something else that's better. 
How many of you have ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Test? It's been a test that's actually been duplicated a number of different times, but the question that the experiment looks to explore is quite simple. Can people delay gratification or not? In the experiment, kids were given one marshmallow by an adult, and they told Told, we're told if you just hold on to that marshmallow, I'll be right back. And if you don't eat it, I'll give you a second one. Well, watch what happens. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one. So then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. Watching kids try to delay gratification with marshmallows is, well, it's rather cute, right? Listening to Peter and watching him not able to handle his, his delayed gratification of what real glory is, well, it's comical. But when it comes to us, it's, it can be something rather critical, right? It can be a very critical condition, especially if we let whatever we're, we're trying to hold on to crowd out real glory, Right? So what is it? What is it for you that is heaven on earth? Maybe it's a, a certain, certain number in your bank account. Maybe it's a picture-perfect family. Maybe it's a dream vacation or a dream home. Or maybe it's a num- number of likes that you get on social media. Or maybe it's a number of, of people that you have in your life who do actually like you. Or maybe it's just your freedom. The ability to let you do you, do whatever you want to do. But whatever it is, whatever your heaven on earth is that you try to tent up, whatever glory it is that you try to keep, well, you're beginning to get the point of transfiguration, aren't you? God is teaching Peter, God is teaching us that he has glory for us, but it is a glory that does not compare to what's here on this earth. Jesus came for that glory, but not to give that glory or to make that glory here. No, the glory that he has for you is something that transcends all understanding. It is a glory that doesn't compare to the pleasures of this world, that's, that's far beyond anything you could think or imagine. And what God is saying, I love you way too much to try to crowd that into 60, 70, 80 years because I want to give it to you for eternity. This is the glory that Christ came for. This is the glory that Christ won for you. Not the glory that appears on earth, but the glory that is to come in heaven because Jesus is not a tent dweller. Jesus is a mansion builder and that is why he came. He came not to tent up his glory, but he came for a purpose to live and die for you and to go home and prepare a place for you. And so Christians, don't mess with tents. Don't mess around with putting up tents. Messiah has made a mansion for you in heaven. And to make the message of transfiguration clear, God the Father showed up himself. Whereas he spoke at Jesus' baptism to to Jesus, here he speaks to us. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. It's not just about what Jesus did, but it's also about what he says. 
God said, listen to him. This Wednesday, we're about to enter a, a sacred season of the church year, the season of Lent. And for the next, next month and a half, we're going to look at what Jesus did for us. Oh, but don't forget to listen, to listen to what he said to us. On the night he was betrayed, he got down and, and washed his disciples' feet and he said, a new command I give you, love one another. On that same night, he also said, a new covenant I'm giving to you. A covenant of grace. A covenant meaning it's a one-way street, not a contract. Not something you have to do for me, but covenant. A covenant that is for forgiveness. Take and eat. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. Listen, do this whenever you can remember for forgiveness of all your sins. And then the next day, he said, it is finished. It's all been done for you. Forgiveness, heaven, life are yours for free. Just think about these three things that he, he begs us to listen to. And imagine if everybody listened to him. If everyone believed him. I mean, just imagine if everyone believed that their relationship was God, with God was right. It was taken care of. It was good. They didn't have anything to worry about. The only thing that they were, had to worry about was their freedom and what to do with it and how they were going to love on other people. Oh, there would be peace. There would be happiness that's unparalleled to anything we see. And yet, what do we see? Oh, we see people still trying to tent up glory. People who are anxious, people who don't have any positivity in their lives. Why? Is it because they can't access what God has given them? No. It's because they're hearing, they're not listening. You say, Pastor, I'm here every Sunday, I listen all the time. No, no, no. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Uh, the composer Igor Stravinsky said this, a, Christ, a Christian himself, he said, to listen is an effort, and just to hear is no merit. A duck also hears. Church, don't be a lame duck. Be a listening Christian. To hear is for words to go one ear out the other. To listen is to take the words and implant them on your heart. To hear is to just show up to church and, uh, you know, cross Christianity off the to-do list. To listen is to leave church and let the cross of Christianity determine your to-do list. So how are you to let hearing turn to listening? Well, do what the disciples did. Walk with Jesus. Get up and walk with him down that mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Get this. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they didn't get it. A week prior, Jesus told them, listen, I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again, and they didn't get it. Two more times, actually, Jesus is going to spell it out for them and say, this is what must happen, and it will happen, so don't worry. I will rise. Other ways, in, in more metaphorical language, he's going to get the message to them over the next number of days as he leads to Jeru Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross, and yet they missed it. And yet, 
they didn't abandon Jesus. They kept walking with him. That's my encouragement. Listen to him. Keep walking with him. Through this season of Lent, walk with Jesus and listen as he talks about how he's going to tear this temple down and raise it up again. Walk with him and, and listen to him and sit with him at the Last Supper and at all the opportunities that you have to join him at that supper still today and hear the forgiveness he offers. Walk with him and listen to him as he breathes his last breath and tells you again, it is finished. You are right. You are mine. You are loved. You know what transfiguration is all about? What this story is about? It's about one thing. The most amazing thing about it is the good news that Jesus walked down the mountain. It's not so much what happened up top, but it's what he did just after. Jesus walked down the mountain and he did it not just so he could commiserate with us who live on the lowly plain, but he walked down the mountain so that one day, one day very soon, he could walk up another mountain, a mountain called Calvary. And that matters to you and me. Because he did that, you and I can walk up a mountain we have no business or no ability to walk up ourselves. And that is the mountain called Zion, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem. Because Christ came down the mountain and went even further, still went into hell and ultimately rose from the dead, you and I will do that too. Amen.